0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. We have another great roundtable for you today. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic, which continues to teach us new and exciting things. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, YouTube, Rockfin, or wherever you watch your videos or listen to your podcast to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis, I am a musician, music producer, and writer editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. But I never do it alone. Please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the show, Matthew Crawford. Good afternoon, Matthew. Hey, Liam. How are you? I am doing very well, thank you. I'm feeling awake and ready to learn some science. I'm
1: feeling pretty good myself. Uh, I went on a, a week-long adventure, eight-day adventure last week. Went to the Children's Health Defense Conference. Um, met a lot of people there that I'd uh, worked with, corresponded with, and, um, and I've come back. But I'm, I'm, I'm wearing my glasses again, and I'm going to go ahead and, and share a secret. I wear glasses, but I have 2020 vision.
0: I'm going to share a secret as well, Matthew. So do I
1: oh, yeah. these are these are blue screen block blue layer blockers is
0: is that what you do yep, and you know what? I don't need them. I have perfect vision. um, these are reading glasses. I was told that I might develop glaucoma someday, which was reason enough for me to get these um and yes, they are they are the blue blockers i have
1: never seen you wear them before.
0: It's because they're unnecessary. I really didn't need to get them, yeah. But you know what? Let's not yeah, yeah. But,
1: but, yeah, real quick. Just a pro tip for anybody who's watching. I just want to say this. Uh, I got these for like $25, right? And and you know, it's like if you get headaches because you get a lot of screen time, like like do that. Just like uh there, there are places online where you can go and get these for, you know, for not much money at all. Anyway. So Sounds like a future go ahead, go ahead and, go ahead and introduce
0: our show. I'm just <laughs> I'm battling, but anyway. Yeah, we're fishing for sponsors there is what we were just doing. Well, <laughs> In any case, uh, I am very excited about today's show. Let's not waste any time in introducing. We have, in fact, two guests today. First, allow us to welcome back to the show, Kevin McKernan, and welcoming to the show for the first time, Alex Washburn. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey there. Good to be here. Now... Our audience will know Kevin and in fact, some of our audience probably is familiar with Alex's work as well. But for those who are not, Alex, do you mind introducing yourself?
2: Yeah, my name's Alex Washburn. Um, If we're fishing for sponsors, I'm wearing some Phonak hearing aids. Um, Yeah, pretty sweet. I like him, huge fan. I'm a mathematical biologist. Got my PhD in both math and biology. And I've done a lot of work in pathogen spillover before COVID. During COVID-19, I did a lot of forecasts for medical demand, and more recently, I've gone back to the passion of spillover and examining the origins of SARS-CoV-2.
0: Wonderful. And that is work that our uh, our, our second and our returning guest, Kevin McKernan, is also rather familiar with. Kevin, do you want to just reintroduce yourself to the audience, some of which sure. may be meeting you for the first time? Uh, so I got
3: my... Um... I started in this field on the Human Genome Project, building uh, what you can see in my backdrop here, which is a, a, a DNA sequencing pipeline at the Whitehead Institute. Um, this is meant for purifying uh, sometimes phage out of bacteria, sometimes plasmids out of bacteria, mostly E. coli, sequencing those uh, at very high throughput. And then I built, spent some time building PCR tests to look for HIV, to look for a variety of viruses at a company called Agincourt that we started. Um, and that also built a DNA sequencer known as a solid sequencer that's been on the marketplace. So. I've got a long history of playing around with genomics, um, building tools that actually pick up a combination in genomes. And so um, I got attracted to the conversation here with Alex because I've been hearing a lot of people talk about this mysterious recombination, and it's bullshit. I, I, until I see data, I don't believe it. Um, yes, it happens in coronaviruses, but it's rare. And I think in order for you to envision what's happening with this coronavirus, it has to happen in multiple places uh, for it to meet um, all of the criteria that we're looking for in SARS-CoV-2. And that's like asking for, um, you know, multiple things, multiple, you know, winning lottery many times in one day. So I'm a little skeptical of it, but maybe um, we'll uh, we'll dig into that a little bit later.
0: Rock on. So and the reason why this chat was uh, was sparked, the reason why we put this together was because, uh, as mentioned, Alex has released a paper on a preprint server on the synthetic origin of SARS-CoV-2. This is Alex's Substack, and I, of course, recommend everyone go and subscribe. I'll make sure it's in the uh, in the description. And this is the preprint itself. So, how do we want to start, Alex? Do you want to introduce the paper so that uh, we're representing it properly? We're not making assumptions about it. What is it that you've published here?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So, I think you know, while many people had heard that you know it was concluded or known that. SARS-CoV-2 came from a zoonotic origin or directly from animals into people, I took a look in the literature after, you know, finishing up all the medical demand forecasts. I read through that literature and I found it deeply unsatisfying. In fact, almost troublesome in the sense of like, it would make very strong claims that um, just weren't clearly evidence of anything at all. You know, it it was, they were making either straw man arguments of of lab origin scenarios, taking the most extreme scenario of an optimized bioweapon saying this isn't an optimized bioweapon. So therefore it couldn't have been a bench mistake or a mouse accidentally biting someone in the national study of wild bat coronaviruses. So I wrote another preprint saying that here are the statistical challenges from trying to make this inference of the zoonotic spillover with these early outbreak data. And shortly after that, I was looking around like, okay, I think we need to look at both hypotheses. and if there were a laboratory origin, then there's a chance that we'd be able to find some fingerprint of synthesis in the lab in the genome of SARS-CoV-2. That's when I stumbled upon Valentin and Tony, Antonius over there who um, they had looked at these sites in the SARS-CoV-2 genome where you cut the virus and where you paste the virus back together again And this is, these sites correspond to very commonly used sites that are, you know, Kevin can tell a lot more about it. These are commonly used sites for DNA assembly. And when you build a virus in a lab, this is how you do it. You don't have the full viral genome, 30 kilobases of RNA. Instead, you have to come up with chunks of DNA and glue them together and then transcribe them to make the RNA and then put that transcript inside of a cell and boom, immaculate conception of virus is born with modern biotechnology. And so when people assemble this virus, they have these methods that historically have been used commonly that left a little tiny signature in the genome. The signature was that these sites were regularly spaced because they wanted to assemble more or less equally sized chunks um, with some, the biggest constraint in the lab being that if your chunk is too big, you put it into a plasmid and it's unstable and you can't synthesize the virus as easily. So big picture is we looked at these cutting sites in SARS-CoV-2. And we found that they were regularly spaced. We quantified the odds of that happening in nature. And then we looked a little further still to say, okay, well, if this was, you know, if these sites were engineered, they would have done so in a very specific way. They would have put silent mutations in order to add and remove these sites. So there are different, two different kinds of mutations synonymous, non synonymous, or silent and non silent. Um, about 84% of the mutations in a coronavirus are silent. So silent mutations are common, but that still gives us enough to test. Like, are there an unusual concentration of silent mutations within these ad- these sites? We found there were, there were, you know, every mutation that modified one of these sites from a close relative was silent, which is exactly how an engineer would do it. And there's a higher concentration of silent mutations within these cutting sites than in the rest of the genome. So we need to so, take some um, of this maybe- together. Oh, go for it, Matthew. So maybe uh, let's slow down on this point right here for a moment, because
1: um, my, my hope is that viewers can can learn a little bit and get some sense of, um, you know, um, can learn some things. And I, and I have some things that I can learn here. But uh, but uh, when we talk about silent mutations, so we're talking about um, where we have like, uh, you know, codon sequences. So three nucleotides in a row and, uh, you know, codon sequences, um, they they they. Um, This is what builds the amino acids for, you know, you have four to the third power, 64 different possible three nucleotide sequences. So, you know, if you you think of, you know, block, 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 four times four times four, you have 64 of these possibilities. There are 20 different amino acids. And uh, and of these 64 sequences, some of them code for various different ones. There are two or four ways to code for most of the um, the amino acids, uh, and then there are three stop codons. So only 61 of the 64 really work to to uh, to to generate you know amino acid production and, and uh, peptides and, and and proteins, which is what uh, which is what uh, happens. And and so you look at these, and when you when you say uh, a silent mutation. Explain that in terms of a codon.
2: Yeah, so there's a codon that you could have. I don't know if a specific example off the top of my head. Let's say you had CGG, and that's your three nucleotides that encode for some protein. And it may be that CGT also encodes for the same amino acid. Um, So if you have CGG and CGT, and they encode for the same amino acid, let's say you really want this to be a CGT. Because then it can be cut. The the genome can be cut at that exact site. Engineers will look at the genome with that eye, and they'll say, "Oh, I can add a turn a G to a T here. It won't change the amino acid, but it will add this cutting site." So that's how the engineers have historically added and removed these cutting sites with silent mutations.
1: Okay, so, um, and I'm going to try to express that in words, and you can tell me if I, if I get any of this wrong, um, but, you know, basically, if, if you want to be able to uh, cut and assemble in the genome, what you want is for this three nucleotide sequence to be producing the same amino acid as before, and there are more of these three nucleotide sequences, you know, 64 of them, um, well, 61 of them in the, that, that encode for amino acids, but there are twenty amino acids, and a lot of species. It's not even. It's not even twenty amino acids. You know, there's like. Uh, you know, there might be six, or eight, or ten. Um, but what you want is to be able to change one nucleotide, but still get the same amino acid. And so, you know, most of the changes that that could occur would wind up changing to to create a different amino acid. So when you see so many that that change one nucleotide and they still code for the same amino acid, it's a little bit suspicious. Statistically, um, we should have a, a distribution and there should be a proportion. And you're saying that's about 84%? Uh, in, is that in coronaviruses specifically?
2: I've, I think I've seen different numbers in different species, right? It does vary. It varies with species and also regions of the genome. Um, and we found there were 14 mutations that separated the SARS-CoV-2 restriction map from its close relatives, all of those were silent. And there's about a 9% chance of that happening. Um, so it's still possible to explain by chance, but what's much less likely to explain by chance is the rate of silent mutations per nucleotide within these cutting sites was higher than the rest of the genome. So if you so took- the cutting sites in particular. And how do you define a cutting site? They're, every enzyme has its own recognition sequence. So the enzymes look around and if it has like CGG, CTC, the enzyme will say, that's me. And it'll latch on and it'll cut somewhere. Different enzymes have different recognition sites, but yeah. And that's why an engineer would want to place a mutation in,
1: in a yeah. certain location to, to draw the attention of, of the enzyme.
2: Exactly, and if you change it by one base pair, then the enzyme won't cut there anymore. And so that's the idea here, is that you can engineer these cutting sites, and they would engineer these cutting sites in the literature before COVID. 80% of the infectious clones that we found had engineered these silent mutations that were retained in the infectious clone. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the fingerprint that we looked for, and we found it in SARS-CoV-2's genome.
3: Yeah, it's, it's somewhat analogous to what they did in the vaccines, what they, they, they performed a codon optimization in the, in the vaccines. And I, I don't know if you guys can see my screen here, but I would just put up a little codon table to help explain uh, what Alex was getting at there. Um, so you, you, what you see here is a box that has three letters uh, that, that are coding for um, the various amino acids. So UUU codes for phenylalanine, uh, but if you change, uh, you, you can also code for it with UUC. So if you don't want to have to change the the amino acid sequence, but you want to change the restriction site that the enzyme hunts for and cuts the DNA, you could change that UUU to UUC. Uh, It would still code for phenylalanine, but you would then have uh, the ability to um, hone a restriction enzyme into that site and not change the resulting um, amino acid that's coded from it. The, um, the, The vaccine manufacturing did this in reverse, is they decided to... Change all of the codons in um, that coded for the spike protein to things that were more human-like, uh, and so they they said, all right, the virus tends to code. In fact, you know, the, the famous one is arginine, right? The virus typically would code for arginine with a CGG. You can see this the CGG over here on the arg uh, over on the right-hand side of this table. Um, well, it, it, it turns out humans code for arginine with CGG, but the virus tends to use CGA. And when they saw that there was cgg cgg in the and cleavage site that was a sign that hey somebody mucked around with the and cleavage site and put in arginine that was using cgg not cga and that's you know that you can calculate the odds of that happening at a certain rate Um, so these codon tables are very helpful to to know because there's a lot of games you can play if you want to keep the amino acids coding for the same things you can still muck around with quite a lot of the dna sequence underneath it uh, and get your restriction enzymes to come in there and do some engineering without changing the actual resulting proteins that come like out of it. You're all in share. Them, so it looks like I just created a mess. Sharing
1: window. You know? One quick point Infinity. for anybody. One quick point for anybody confused about the U in there. Uh, normally, uh, you know, you, you might see, uh, you know, T, uh, A, C, G, T, but um, uh, the U is a uh, pseudo
3: well, in this case, it's actually uridine, because um, we're looking at an amino acid uh, table. But in the vaccine, you're right, they, they altered that to a, an uh, N1-methyl-pseudouridine, which has a, another methyl group on the U. But in RNA, uh, U replaces T. DNA has it as a thymine, and in, in uracil, or in, in the RNA space, it gets converted to U, which is a slightly modified version of thymine.
2: But well, yeah, big picture, there's the genetic code. <clears throat> DNA, you know, the the DNA is awesome. It's the library of the cell, but it's the proteins that do stuff. And the codon table Kevin showed is how we translate the DNA into the the amino acids and the proteins that do stuff in the cell, like make a spike protein or a nucleocapsid for a virus or things like that. And when people are studying viruses in the lab, they don't, they want to study a real virus. They don't want to modify it away from a wild virus too much because then they can't claim that their findings are reflective of a virus in nature. So that's why they require silent mutations when they're making these infectious clones. They want to ensure that the proteins that make up the virus are identical. Now,
3: there is a subtle nuance to a lot of this, which is, it's a bit of a departure from Alex's topic here, but you can change, when you make some of these silent changes, they're not as silent as we would hope them to be. Um, but that's the best you can do in an engineering standpoint. If you need to insert a restriction enzyme site, you would do it through making a silent mutation. Uh, there are cases in the literature where you swap some of these codons, and particularly in, this, in the spike protein, where you can start to see ribosomal pausing because you're asking the cell to put it in a codon it's not used to seeing. So for instance, if you go off dialect and you move from SARS to human codons, well, SARS was evolved in some host, presumably, and it, it evolved its codon structure the way it is. Uh, for for the proper balance of infectivity and and survival of its host, right? We went in on the spike protein and changed all of that in warp speed to different codon structures, and many argue that 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 alters the way the protein gets assembled and folded. You still get the same amino acid sequence in theory, but it may fold differently because it's, it's happening at different rates, something known as ribosomal pausing. Uh, that's a bit off topic of where of where Alex is going on here, but th- there are such there is some critique to this concept of making silent mutations in the case of building a virus. So you have no other option but to do this if you want to stitch these things together and you're only going to make like six of these changes. You're not changing every single codon like they did in the vaccine. Well, you see no other you see no other
1: option. Uh, what about serial passaging?
3: Well, you still have to synthesize this. this so this 30 kb piece of RNA, there are a couple limitations in the lab today. Um, maybe this will change in 10 years. But right now, we can't readily synthesize a 30,000-letter piece of RNA uh, out of, uh, you know, some of the oligo shops that do this are like IDT is one that's that's well-known in, in the US or in Idaho. Uh, so what they do instead is they, amp, they, 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 they um, make it in blocks, um, almost like you build a bridge with certain I-beams of certain sizes. You, don't, you notice when engineers build a bridge, they don't take a bunch of random sizes of steel and put it together and, and hope to get a bridge. They actually make it in a certain unit size, because that's this unit size that's easy to manage in the lab. It's easy to PCR, and it's easy to actually store in a plasmid. When you make them too big and you put them in a plasmid, the plasmids sometimes kick them out or recombine them because they don't like harboring DNA that's 20,000 letters long. Uh, likewise, if you need to amplify the piece of material, you don't want to have it too large because it's difficult to amplify things that are larger than like 20 KB. So you have you have to build these things in pieces and most most people are building them with six or seven pieces. If you look in the literature for building these these coronaviruses, they're usually in that range somewhere between, uh, I mean, maybe five to ten is the range, but they're usually around seven pieces of the genome get stitched together uh, and, you know, they're each about seven KB in size.
0: Okay, now you guys are using a lot of big, fancy words, and I like it. Um, And I do pick up most of it. And luckily, the the Rounding the Earth audience and those who maybe are just joining the Rounding the Earth audience tend to be quite... even if these are these are topics they haven't explored in depth, they're very quick at picking stuff up. However, I, I do want to try to uh, put this into terms that are quite clear for folks. So, this idea of silent mutation, so on and so forth. Alex, um, this Naruto um, uh, example you give is this? Can you can you walk us through? Uh, Can you put this into simple language? Why is it that uh, it's not necessarily a terrible thing that these uh, viruses are being engineered, that SARS-CoV-2 itself seems to have been engineered for a purpose? Why is it then not necessarily, as we hear all the time, a a bioweapon? And and is this Naruto uh, meme you're sharing a way of explaining that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, I liked Naruto a lot. So this came to mind quickly, but the big picture here is that infectious clone sounds like it could be bad. This is technically what we call these viruses that are synthesized in this way as an infectious clone. And the Naruto example is just to show like an infectious clone can be a dud and it doesn't, it just because it's an infectious clone doesn't mean it's worse. doesn't mean it's gain function or loss function. It's just a clone. And, you know, so these, this was trying to kind of, you know, soften the language a bit because we, we call this evidence of synthetic origin and we realize synthetic, you know, if you have a synthetic drug, it just seems like way more awful than a normal drug or a synthetic virus could be like evil and malicious or some lab construct. It is a lab construct, but it's just relating to a common method of synthesis of DNA. And the infectious clone is another term that we have to use. And I just wanted to help people know that there's not some nefariousness with infectious clones. It's rather just the technique that people use to make a virus in the lab to study it further.
0: Right. And that that certainly but, but, makes uh,
2: sense. Uh, Liam, if I, if I could jump in, but
1: there there may be uh, an excessive danger. Uh, some people might argue there's an excessive danger to making infectious clones, period. And and uh, like I was talking with um, JJ Cooey about this earlier today, um, he, he's a... Uh, Biologist that uh, Kevin and I know um, fairly well, and and uh, he, he was pointing out, look, in in the viral swarm, um, you have all these different virions, and maybe only one percent of them are replication competent. You know, uh, many of them are fragments. Many of them have have mutations, so they're not the ones that are going to be selected, or or that would stifle their their ability to to replicate. But when you um, but when you have these infectious clones, um, you might have a very high concentration like either all all of like there's very little variation essentially either all of them are going to be infectious or none of them and, and i say all of them it might still be like 50 you know you're still going to have fragments you're still going to have you know little bits of mutations here and there but uh if something like this were to escape a lab it might really be a serious problem because instead of one percent infectious in the swarm, you might have fifty percent at least for a while, at least until it sort of you know turns into its own cloud. It it, it you know maybe combines with with the old cloud of coronavirus. Maybe uh, uh you know nerfs itself after a while. Uh, we should see some sort of equilibrium restored, perhaps. Uh, it, it, is this fair?
2: So there is a lot of genetic diversity and viruses in a host. Um, there can be, it varies depending on the virus, depending on the host and how long they've been infected, et cetera. Um, and how much within host selection there is when it comes to the infectious clone initially. Yeah. There's this DNA copy and the virus is printed off of that, like a 3d printer. Um, you know, make the RNA throw the RNA in a cell and then the instant that cell starts producing viruses, it'll have this, you know, it'll, the diversity fans out from there. Um, infectious clones can be dangerous just like any virus alive, but even if it wasn't an infectious clone, but you had a single virion, that could still be dangerous. You know, there's some risks inherent in virological research of getting infected. And, you know, I think that's kind of the, that, that's one of, you know, there are a lot of risks in virological research. Other people can talk more about that, um, than me certainly from their own like wet lab knowledge and BSL 4 3 2 whatever delineations on like what what lab techniques are at play but big picture from like a statistician standpoint is there are some baseline risks that someone can get infected you can get infected if you're catching a bat you can get infected if you're playing in a lab and someone gets poked or bit by a mouse or if you know there's a seal that's wrong in a cage or if the heap of is broken there's a bunch of ways that biological research can have the risk of infecting someone, even if they're doing everything right. There's no maliciousness, even if the infectious clone is, you know, not designed to have some enhanced functionality. Um, so it's good to separate those a little bit. The infectious clone doesn't necessarily mean to gain a gain of function. Um, it does start off with limited diversity, just like any one virion, and then diversity fans out from there. Um, but yeah, the big picture from that Naruto meme was just showing that, Infectious clones is just a concept we have to use. So, like, connect mm-hmm. ourselves with the literature and that it's not necessarily true. nefarious. There, there, there's a, an important
3: point, though, that I think you're hitting on, um, Matthew, here, which is that in order to have high fidelity manufacturing of these things, um, there's certain tools that, that people want to use to maintain that, this, that there's a DNA stock. For example, Alex brought up the fact that these things are usually put into plasmids and they're made in DNA, because DNA is very stable, and they can print copies of RNA off the DNA. The reason that's done is that um, you can maintain DNA at a much higher fidelity in in E. coli in a plasma. The error rates of those systems are maybe 1 in in 10 million. Uh, If we we were to be amplifying this with PCR, you might get an error rate of 1 in 10,000 or 1 in 100,000. The polymerase that copies that DNA just makes mistakes. Um, once you move into the RNA world, they make even more mistakes. That goes up another order of magnitude when you start copying RNA. Um, so the reason that there is this hierarchical construction of these viruses is to maintain fidelity. That's the main point. And if you were to go to ID, I think I put IDT's website in here. It may not be in the public chat, but it's in the side chat there. I don't think I have access to the public chat, but. Um, that gives you a sense of what the synthesis costs are to make like a 3,000 base piece of DNA with high fidelity. And they give you some assessment of like what the error rates are and how they sequence validate it. But you can see these are so, some of the commercial um, ec- and some of the economic pressures people are under is that they they can't just go to IDT. Uh, that's another interesting paper as well that we, we oh, can touch on. Okay. But um, one uh, another link up is IDT's page. They can't just go to a store and say, "Give me a 30 KB virus, put it in the mail, I'll have it tomorrow, and and uh, I'll go infect a school or something." Right? This is something where you really have to plan out the organization of what you're going to build and how you're going to piece the puzzle together. And these restriction sites that Alex is zeroing in on are really important part of how to glue these pieces together. So this is IDT. You'll see they have pricing in here on uh, if you want to make uh, all the way at the bottom, you'll see. I think the most they make is a 3000 base pair piece of DNA for you. Not very expensive. Um, They'll sequence validate it for you. And they have maybe an error rate of one in 12,000 when they do this. So every third fragment that they've built for you will have an error in it. Um, And there are some ways of trying to correct those errors after you've done some assembly on this stuff. But this is some of the reason why it's not just like a presto, here's your 30 KB virus we synthesized with oligos. It's you have to make these things in pieces and they tend to make them in, uh, and you know, this, this shop's offering you three KB. You can go to GenScript and they offer you, I think up up to 12 KB. Um, So different shops will offer slightly different lengths, but doesn't really get much larger than 12 right now. And most people don't, they want to handle things around the 7K, 7 kb, 7,000-letter range, because that's something they're comfortable amplifying, they're comfortable cloning into plasmids, and then they have a stock of these things that are frozen in E. coli cells that can readily pull out and infinitely replicate. The reason we put these in E. coli is you simply have to take a, a little toothpick, pick the E. coli out, put it into some broth, and overnight you can grow up millions to billions of copies of these things. So it's like an infinite Xerox machine for whatever you've decided to synthesize. Uh, So it's it's a high fidelity, um, you know, storage system, if you will.
0: So, um, okay, I I see what's going on here a little bit. We've got this um, very well established, very intricate process by which this kind of research is is conducted. Often it's not by default a nefarious uh, uh, process or area of science. But what seems to have happened is... I don't know about you guys. I've had a very strange experience trying to uh, navigate seeking information about all of this in the context of COVID. For some reason, this has been a very controlled discussion. Um, I remember when you weren't even allowed to suggest, uh, uh, you know, whether nefarious or not, that SARS-CoV-2 could be anything other than sprung out of a wet market in Wuhan. And... Yeah. Um, that yeah, yeah exactly, well, and I'm, then I, I remember I, the day where that was no longer a policy on Facebook, where they I'm, said I'm you can't. It. Talk about it.
3: I, I think a lot of the scientists in the field were guilty of this, myself included. Is I, I did not want to be the person standing up saying weapons of mass destruction, and some war starts out over this. Fair right? enough. So it's it, it, now that's not a really a good scientific concept because you really should never be baking in the the consequences of your science into your hypothesis into your your your, your, your thesis generation, right? Right. Uh, that's it's just you should never pollute science that way. And, and I did. I made the mistake of thinking, OK, I, I better be really careful about what I say about this, because it's going it to turns out the war started in Ukraine. Some are completely irrelevant to, to what happened in Wuhan. And and it turns out in Wuhan, there may, in fact, be some bread trails back to the U.S. So it's, it's somewhat of a neutralizing argument in many ways. But I certainly was shy early in the pandemic and condemned, uh, you know, People forwarded me some blast results of, um, I think it was in that pandemic movie and the blast results weren't even right. So I was, I was instantly throwing that argument under the bus uh, because the first depictions of it were
2: nearly as credible as what Alex's team has put forward. Right. Uh, one thing I will say is I've kind of had a, an odyssey throughout the pandemic. In February, 2020, I had forecasts suggesting there'd be a huge surge in March, 2020 in places like New York. And that was not conventional. At the time, people were saying there'd be a June, July Slow-growing, 6.2-day doubling time peak at June and July 2020, and my science disagreed with that, and there wasn't a consensus. And when I tried to share it, there was considerable pushback, and people saying, "No, you're not an epidemiologist, or you're just a whatever. You're a research scientist, not a professor at whatever, whatever big school." And there's a lot of credentialistic arguments to kind of push us down. Um, at the end of the day, I, I didn't share it. I just shorted the market and. You know, that was, you know, kind of a cynical way to go that made me feel bad. But then came back. I said, like, no, no, no. We have to, like, examine this theory. So there, the theory had the implication that there may be slightly less people dying. <clears throat> not a hoax, but not the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. This, like, middle ground that gets you, you know, pisses off both sides. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so that's where I found myself. It was like, I think this is the correct estimate. Is a mathematical biologist, a statistician? I think this is the true answer. And that that upset a lot of people with these estimates of how many people visited the doctor with influenza-like illness in March 2020. So throughout COVID, I've seen I have seen this kind of unsettling pattern of um, a sort of discouraging scientific discourse and disagreement in favor of a false consensus or too early, you know, planting the flag and something that ends up not being the truth. And I'm not sure why exactly that's happened. There have been some troublesome you know, troubling whispers and emails here and there, but we do need more information to know what the heck, that why the heck that happened and how we can do better next time. But the origins question, you're not alone. You know, it's in a, this is an important question. And early on, we had some of the world leaders in the field to say absolutely no way could yeah. this have come from a lab, you know, and they said, look at this, that the spike is not optimally binding ACE2, so therefore it could not have come from a lab. But that optimal optimal binding doesn't preclude a lab origin. You could have gotten a bat virus, brought it into the lab, made an infectious clone, not done any serial passaging or any optimization of spike binding, and poof, it can still come from a lab. And so these arguments are some of the things I looked at. I'm Mm -hmm. like, that's weird. You know, that's that's not a good argument. Then you have people saying like, oh, you know, we're in support of scientists in China studying COVID-19 and, you know, against conspiracy theories of a laboratory Mm -hmm. origin Written by um, the people who were studying coronaviruses with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, who did not disclose that conflict of interest. So there were, there was, you know, where did this social norm come from? It's not yep. clear. Um, but it was, yeah, under- and, and, how and this is
1: where. This is where the term conspiracy theory really just becomes anti-science. The moment you have uh, a block on in, on scientific information, the moment you have something, and, and clearly there is there is uh, information chaos. I'm just going to use that 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 phrase vaguely. There's information chaos around the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You know um, what it was intended for you know, why it was built over the objections of French intelligence, whether or not it was really uh, pushed by uh, the U.S., um, you know, what what the real purposes were, why it is that, that you know, we never shared BSL-4 technology with China, with mainland China. There's two in, in Taiwan, but there were zero in mainland China. So I, I just want to throw this out there. Uh, in the context of science, um, th- this phrase conspiracy theory, at this moment for this particular topic is clearly anti-science it is is getting in the way of examining hypotheses so i'm going to encourage people to just throw that term out the window especially in regards to this question you know this is you know what you've done is you've taken a scientific approach you've taken a statistical approach um toward examining reasonable questions and given that we have not found the animal host yet uh you know we're, we're at the point at which um you know th- this is this is a welcome paper and and uh you know this is a path that we need to go down in conversation there's
2: there's
3: well,
1: another just,
3: i'll go for it kevin I, I was just gonna raise there's another like i think flavor of like elitism that's going through this that, that it needs to be brought to bear which is that there are always a they're always white knighting their concerns of some other fool is going to take your misinformation and hurt themselves with it. It's never them because they're smart enough to know it's, it's not right. And it's never you who's uttering it. They're always talking about some person who's not in the room is going to be misled by your information and get hurt by it. Uh, and I always find that to be a very specious argument. It's like if, if it can't be debated amongst two people right here, um, then what's, what's the harm of this information? Uh, but I always—I don't know—I—I I, I don't find that to be scientific at all. And being like your information needs to be silenced because someone else might misinterpret and get hurt with it—not me, not you, but someone who's not in this room right now. It's almost like you're—you've got that image of the person, uh, you know, on a on a leather couch. Like, show me on the doll where the information hurt you today. You
0: know, <laughs> <laughs> it's patronizing. And I'll tell you, I I, I crave now uh, being told I'm wrong. I I crave. Having someone explain I mean, you something. in detail while I'm, uh, you know, why I'm wrong. And I've, I've as a layperson, I, I mean, I'm a musician. I've learned as I've gone over the last couple of years and been wrong. You know, I've said something that wound up being ridiculous. But I have uh, people around me who happen to be very smart who then sit down and explain it to me and sometimes yell it at me. I love that. I, and I can't believe we're at a point where that's considered wrong. Uh, and it's just shut up and do what we say. Like, is there any context in which that makes sense? So well, I, I, yeah. The, yeah just, the the I, think people, I guess is the important. mindset of
2: many people was this was a, an emergency, right? And in an emergency, anything you say that's not, you know, the authorities lining people up and moving them along risks lives. And I was told that these forecasts of a March 2020 surge could be making responsible for the deaths of millions. Or the other hypothesis is if they're wrong, This can help people prepare and save lives. And so there was this unusual asymmetry in how these arguments were applied. um, It's it's funny that
1: authorities would be telling the scientists who would be the ones making the judgment about the emergency,
2: right? If you're not the expert, who would be? (laughs) And that's, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I don't. Mean it to my horror. Most of what I learned was at the University of New Mexico and public schools in Albuquerque, in New Mexico. But then I got a PhD at Princeton in you know quantitative and computational biology, and did a postdoc at Duke University, and have done like leading data stuff. (laughs) I've done stuff. I've done, you know, so I'm not an idiot. And even then, like that wasn't enough to like to 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 enter into this discussion without getting these critiques. And so you could have. You know, it, it's it's unsettling to me, at the, at, you know, on many levels. Um, it's definitely I see the elitism that Kevin is pointing out and I also see some like really important market inefficiencies. That's why I was able to short the market. It was like people don't know there's another theory because the person with the theory is being told he's a conspiracy theorist. Hmm. And that's really troubling for science. If you can just say, like, my theory is the truth and their theory is a conspiracy theory. You know, realistically, we have to like. Yeah, it's Lysanchoism. We have to look at this kind of knowledge like at the base. Yeah, there's speculation. Scientists speculate, too. We speculate all the time. That's how we make hypotheses and decide what to test. And that's how we make theories. And the theories stick around a little bit longer than hypotheses. But eventually they'll go to and then at the top, there's actual observable facts. You know, like most things are not facts, even though we're fact checking things. You know, we're saying like this hypothesis is not fact. You right. know, it, it you yeah. should be saying like, this is a hypothesis. There are other hypotheses. Here's the data, that the facts that can test them. Yeah, there's a big picture harm that's been done to science,
1: uh, science equating the results of science with truth and facts. Whereas, uh, you know, science is, is really just, um, you know, you do the best you can to create experiments and results. And then each of us is, as individual observers can interpret those results as 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 best we can and the goal is wisdom not truth. Um but, and thank you for leading us to that point because it's one that I like to make as often as possible. You know, science is not about um, determining what the truth is, it's about uh, asymptotically, you know, uh, getting as close as we can with with our you know, with our wisdom. But um but if we could let, let's return back to um The uh, let's return back to the analysis in this paper. So you, you make an argument, you make a statistical argument. Um, You know, if you have, um, you know, these uh, restriction sites, um, you know, proportion of them over a specific span of, of nucleotides, then you can say there is something statistically unusual. And that's not proof of anything, but as, as the, as the likelihood gets extremely rare, may see hmm. Yeah, I think that you know, the the conditional makes me think this is more likely to be uh, lab made. Um, so we, we've made that part of the argument. What what else do you have uh, in the paper? You've put together multiple arguments here.
2: I think it's one. It's good to go to Figure Two if you're able to.
0: Um, yeah, let me get there. Let's see. Uh, so that's Figure uh, One. Right this there. is Figure right.
2: Two. So those first two plots on the left hand side show. The first one is MERS, a MERS coronavirus, and the second one is a bat coronavirus at the Wuhan Institute of Virology called WIV1. And in the first row, the kind of opaque dots are the cutting sites of the wild type virus, and they're randomly spaced. They're randomly distributed throughout the genome. The engineers look at those cutting sites, they're like, "Mm, that won't work for us. So they add and remove these cutting sites, in the case of MERS, they removed all the pre-existing cutting sites and they added their own to assemble these blocks that Kevin was talking about. They did something similar with with one, they kept two or three of the sites it looks like and then they added several more and they removed one. So they just do this like the silent addition and removal of these sites in order to get this equal spacing. And one way we can quantify that equal spacing there are a bunch of ways, right? You know, it's what's the variance in the fragment length could be one way to do it. But One way that relates directly to the bioengineering constraints is the length of the longest fragment. And that's that figure on the right-hand side. So as a function of the number of fragments, as you, if you have a random cutting of a viral genome, for the more fragments you have, the longest fragment will on, you know, on average be expected to go down and be shorter and shorter. And so that's that gray, those gray box plots are what happens if you digest 70 other coronaviruses with hundreds of other restriction enzymes and a thousand pairs of restriction enzymes. This is your null model of sorts for what the longest fragment should look like if you're just randomly cutting coronaviruses with these sites that are not themselves under selection. Okay, can,
1: can I stop and ask a question to see how well I understand this? Because I'm trying to connect this now to what Kevin was talking about, where you can have uh, nucleotide sequences manufactured for you. Um, th- this this is beginning to sound like um, what goes on with uh, silicon chips. You know, we're getting uh, manufacturing down. You know, it was a uh, what was it like nine uh, nanometers? Then it was seven. Then five. Then we've got like four. Do we have three chips? Three nanometer uh, chips now? I, I I'm not even sure if if, if um, you know, what the line is anymore, but basically we're getting better and better at manufacturing, but there's an economy to this. So if you wanted to manufacture, uh, genetic sequences, um, what you might want to do is have a standard length that you know, that you can manufacture with fidelity. Kevin, am I, am I, Yes. Putting the right pieces together you
3: here. You are. And you'll want a system that will allow you um, to go back and tinker because no one builds one of these constructs once. They, they build one and then they build changes to one uh, to see, OK, let's change the FCS and see what happens if we alter that. Let's change the R, R, RNA polymerase gene and see if you know what happens there. So um, what you'll see in, in the Ham Smith paper that I published there is most people build these things hierarchically. Uh, is they'll have six or seven pieces that build the main, the main framework of the whole virus, um, but, but they'll store those each in a different E. coli cell, a different plasmid, so they can pull them out at any time. Let's say you want to change fragment six and insert uh, a particular mutation to maybe give you a new restriction site or give you a new feature. You, you can pull out that one piece of the genome and work on it and then put it back in. So it's kind of like an indexing system um, so that when you go to fix a bridge, you don't have to tear the whole bridge down. You can go take out one piece of it and fix it and put it back. Um, now in Ham Smith work, when he Ham Smith actually, probably 15 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, they assembled a genome 20 times larger than SARS. It's called Mycoplasma Genitalia. It's in science. It's a great paper. But if you look at that, you'll see that they took this very hierarchical approach where they had, six KB pieces of DNA that they would glue together into 30 KB pieces of DNA. Those they would then glue together into, you know, even larger pieces. So they had this kind of stepwise hierarchical assembly process. And the part of the reason for that is it makes it easy to index. If you want to go back and change a particular thing, you're not starting from scratch and redoing the whole genome. You just go to that one designated chapter and fix it and put it back.
2: If I could, yeah, I'll chime in the big picture. You build a virus one part at a time, just like an Ikea cabinet. And, you know, to build a virus, you have to have these chunks that are all roughly under eight kilobases long on average. So these, in order to build a SARS coronavirus, you would want to cut it up into these chunks. Maybe you order, you know, have someone print out these chunks for you. You glue them together with these cutting and pasting sites. And then we can identify an infectious clone by looking at the longest fragment. How big is the biggest fragment as a function of the number of these sites or the number of fragments used to assemble, potentially assemble the virus. And that red box you see on the right hand side of this figure, that's sort of the sweet spot for an infectious clone. That's the upper bound is about 9,000 base pairs long. So that's actually a little too long for most people. The lower bound is a theoretical minimum if you had perfectly evenly spaced cutting sites. The right and left-hand side, or just the range of what was usually proposed is like five to seven. Um, they proposed five to seven fragments as a sort of idealized efficient system. In the case of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they tried to make seven fragments. One of them didn't work so they cut it in half and that's why they have eight fragments for that virus. So we're able to identify the fingerprint of an infectious clone by looking at where they fall on this plot. They could fall anywhere. These cutting and pasting sites could lead to 13 fragments, they could lead to one, they could lead to two. They could have a maximum fragment like that's higher than average. And so if we look at these sites, especially for these cutting and pasting enzymes that are very commonly used on the market, and they fall in that red box, then that starts to be evidence of this being an infectious clone.
1: So what we should have are is something you know that looks more like random intervals that might be uh, you know on some sort of a distribution, maybe um, you know maybe a, a cutoff uh, binomial distribution, perhaps. Um, but instead, what we have is very, very regular intervals, which which um, points to there being some sort of organizational process.
2: Yeah, and there's some possibility of getting irregular intervals from chance. And we tried to quantify that by digesting these other coronaviruses with a whole bunch of enzymes and using that as our null model instead of trying to make too strong of statistical assumptions about you know uniformly placing points on the genome and cutting there. Um, we just looked at actual genomes of actual coronaviruses that are subject to all the same evolutionary forces of different kinds of mutations and recombinations, etc., and that's the gray box spots. Those are actual coronaviruses digested by actual enzymes um, in silico on the computer, but nonetheless, like that's our null model is like what happens in nature. And so we're really testing, is this a natural virus? You know, How likely is this to occur in nature?
3: Now, there, this- there, are, um, there are some viruses that, as, after your preprint came out, some people started throwing some of the viruses at you that I, I, I would label as having questionable origins that we don't actually know. Uh, they came out after the pandemic, so we don't really know when their birth was. And some of them um, came out from Ed Holmes, who is right now being congressionally investigated for obfuscating the Proximal Origins paper, and what have you. Um, that's, I encourage people to read that on their own. I'll probably get to murder the, the proper, um, I don't know how official that investigation is, but there's a letter from from some, some congressmen asking Ed Holmes about um, what happened during the whole Fauci telephone call about uh, what when they changed their opinion from this being uh, having some weird evolutionary behavior to suddenly it definitely being being from a wet market. So there's a handful of sequences like that. I think they're the, the RPY-NO6 sequence is one. I think RAT-G13, I've seen data on suggesting it has an odd microbiome from Steve Massey. Um, and I think even some of the um uh, ones came out afterwards uh, from Laos. And there's some questions as to whether those are do those things nullify your results? My my general sense is I'm not convinced those things uh, work. Hey, uh, real, real quick, um,
1: uh, I, uh, Liam, do you have your uh, finger on a button throwing all these posts up? Yeah, sorry. Uh, okay, I, I just wanted to... to right. yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Go ahead, um,
3: anyway, so my question was, was what is, what is your take of all these other viruses that have been thrown at you since this came out?
2: You know, I think there's a lot of... Um, different ways to view this. Um, so on one hand, big picture. So if we go down to the next figure, if we're able to. Yep. Um, we'll see, what does SARS-CoV-2 look like? You know, Where does SARS-2 fall on this spectrum? <laughs> and so the first part shows these particularly useful enzymes for this cutting and pasting called BSMB1 and BSA1. And those are right, You know, they have a small fragment, that fragment D. Um, But otherwise, they're very regularly spaced. And if you go down a little bit further, you can see how every other coronavirus used in our set looks. The dashed lines in in Part B here show you um, the dashed vertical lines are these cutting and pasting sites for SARS-CoV-2. They're fairly regularly spaced. On the right-hand side, you see the maximum fragment length of SARS-CoV-2 falls smack in the middle of the box alongside a lot of other known infectious clones. So this for us was like, it was strong evidence to examine this further, and we measure how many standard deviations below the mean for that number of fragments SARS-2 was, and, it, and that gives you a way of assessing the likelihood, you know, is this more or less likely to have been engineered? The farther to the left on, you know, sub-panel D a virus falls, the more likely it is to have been engineered, and SARS-CoV-2 by this metric is more likely to have been engineered than three known engineered <laughs> infectious clones and many other viruses. So at the very least, this lends itself to the hypothesis that SARS-CoV-2 may have been synthesized by these BSA-1 and bsmb one sites being cut and pasted together. So that's, that's kind of our big finding initially. That was our like, wow, we need to look further in this. So we decided to test that hypothesis and say, okay, well, in order for this to be a system to assemble a virus, it has to meet a bunch of other criteria. For instance, all these sticky ends that come from cutting have to be unique. Otherwise they'll you know, sort in different orders and you won't get the same virus. You'll get fragment D where fragment B should be or something like that. And things will get out of order. You don't get a virus at the end of the day. So all the sticky ends of, of these cutting sites are unique. So they will assemble in the right order. They differ from close relatives by exclusively silent mutations, which is a prereq for any engineering. And there's a higher concentration of silent mutations within these sites than in the rest of the genome, and so that's those are all the criteria that we used to try to reject this hypothesis of a synthetic origin of SARS-CoV-2. We weren't able to, so that lends us to the theory that perhaps SARS-CoV-2 was synthesized in the lab with this common method and these common enzymes. So that's kind of big picture what we found. And some people said, you know, what about this other virus? <laughs> what about these other and that's fair, you know. Like this is science. Like, oh, I did, we didn't we didn't exclude any data set, you know, because any virus because of its congruence or not with our findings. We just sampled things from the NCBI and got what we could. So they showed us this virus it has some of these sites and not the others, um, and they make a convincing argument that perhaps this had recombined, and the recombination event could, you know, which is where a big chunk of a virus kind of swap parts in nature. And that's possible. That's also the program that was being proposed to study these viruses was to swap parts of a virus in a lab. So we can't, you know, discriminate too well between these hypotheses here. We also have to be able to verify the sequence in some way, shape or form. So there's a bunch of other, you know, it's a fair hypothesis that perhaps this is all just chance recombination. But again, every virus you see on the screen here was also subject to recombination. And none of them had a, you know, so while there were some that had restriction maps of some enzymes that were more extreme than SARS-CoV-2, there were none of them that had a restriction enzyme of the, uh, a map for these enzymes that can cut and paste a genome. SARS-CoV-2 is the biggest outlier of the entire set. So we, that's 1,491 other restriction maps that could potentially be used to assemble a virus, and SARS-CoV-2 is the biggest outlier of everything we saw. So we can add one more genome and look at it. And it's possible recombination could explain it, but that's a hypothesis. And we need to look further to test that. And so we're open to that. It's possible those sequences, which were uploaded by the Chinese Academy of Science members and Eddie Holmes, perhaps there's some lab specific artifacts, you know, that could be, (laughs) that could kind of um, account for contamination or other issues. Or maybe their sequences are just you know they're slightly erroneous, or there's there's a number of different ways in which that hypothesis might not stand the test of time. But it's fair and it's there, and that's you know that science is. We'll test these two hypotheses with more data. Um, so that's kind of my my response to that rebuttal is like it's totally fair to say maybe you know by extreme chance recombination produced this perfectly even spacing. I'm not perfectly, but this very neat and remarkable even spacing that. Is amenable to assembly, and they will also have to say that recombination, additionally, added a and cleavage site, and additionally, this all happened right. in Wuhan. This, is, this <laughs> is why I was uh, I
3: was uh, a little skeptical in the beginning of this cast. Is that I don't think you can take a, a hypothetical like that where you don't have the sequence evidence in your hand and use it against your hypothesis, which has a lot more evidence at, at hand. Like I, I would want to see the exact virus. And the recombination map that they're suggesting—they're suggesting one could exist, but they've not, you know, they've not handed one over. And The one that I've seen discussed on Twitter is, is is this RPYN06. And when I look at that restriction map next to yours and SARS-CoV-2, it looks like it would need more than one recombination event to get—it's an addition and a subtraction of a couple sites. Uh, yeah, is, is asking for a lot of a combination to occur. So it's kind of like you're looking for a unicorn and a chimera at the same time. And and um, I, I, when you're asking for that much, please provide the sequence. Not uh, it's it's not a strong enough um, hypothesis to, to knock down what you've presented.
2: And yeah, my the view-
1: more the more induction is necessary. The more st- hoops you have to jump through, uh, the weaker you know we we generally consider an argument in science. And and. Yeah. And, and there's there's some distance. There's there's some um, proximity that you have to get to to even be able to judge that. Right. Uh, but I, I, I have to jump in and say real quick. Um, and I, I want the audience to 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 think about this for a moment. Um, this conversation, like I, I get this feeling from Alex. This is this is what scientific conversations sound like in, in a in a lab or, or, you know, when you get a group of people together and there's no politics. And there's no, um, you know, feeling of I have to convince somebody. Um, science is very often these lighthearted conversations. It's very often playful. You know, if you, if you can go into a room with, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, five good scientists who don't have an agenda, um, it, it's really it's fun. You know, I mean, you, you have to yeah. you have to like that sort of fun. You know, you have to be that kind of weird. But but, it, it you know, you, you can hear the difference between um you know alex and kevin you know exploring this and what you hear on the television you know the skilled tv watchers are presented with these authority figures who tell them with certainty what's known and what is the truth and that's that's just not the way science is and this should this should be something that should be filtering through people's you know bs detectors and how it, you know their uh, their ability to uh to maintain appropriate levels of proxy trust, which I think is one of the great lessons of the pandemic, if anything.
2: I think that's a good point. You know, and I won't insinuate motives on anyone, at least on this call. That's the speculation category, which again, everyone speculates and that's the breeding ground of hypotheses, the primordial lose of, you know, testable hypotheses. But yeah, it has been disconcerting to see scientific discourse fall by the wayside throughout the pandemic because look at the end of the day we found a pattern SARS-CoV-2 is a very extreme outlier among natural coronaviruses in exactly the way that we would expect an infectious clone to be an extreme outlier. And it's important to put these pieces of the puzzle together because if you look at them separately, you can be like, oh, if you're in cleavage site, that can happen by chance, you know, like this synthetic, you know, like this BSA-1, BSM-1 restriction map, that can happen by recombination and all this other chance events happen here. It's totally true. All kinds of things can happen by chance. Ah, You know, a, a spillover event in Wuhan, that could happen even though Wuhan is not a hotspot of wildlife coronaviruses. Under the zoonotic origin theory, all of these are just independent coincidences. However, under the lab origin theory, they're not. Under the lab origin theory, there was a research proposal, the DEFUSE grant, that said we are going to get wildlife coronaviruses in Laos. We're going to ship them to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We're going to make them as infectious clones with this kind of technology and insert a furin cleavage site. So then under the lab origin theory, we when we see a virus in Wuhan with a furin cleavage site and signs, you know, at least being very consistent with a synthetic origin, then that evidence kind of it synthesizes, it synergizes together. You know, there's more information there than any one piece of the puzzle will tell you. And when you see the big picture, this is, imagine if we didn't find this, right? The Wuhan Institute of Virology has made one prominent coronavirus infectious clone that they've published. And it was the one we showed in figure two using this exact method. Xi Zhang Li came from Ralph Baric's lab. Ralph Baric loved this method. This is his efficient reverse genetic system. So what happened is we have, you know, triangulated this assembly process to a bat virus, <laughs> a bat SARS coronavirus, just like those caught, you know, found by example, by EcoHealth Alliance, with an assembly method used by Barrick, And, you know, this thing arose right outside the doorstep of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where Shi Li was working with these viruses doing exactly this approach. So there's a bit more evidence, the totality of evidence is a bit stronger than any one piece or even the sum of the parts. And I think that's an important thing to think about in this inductive process. And and, and you know, since we're talking about consistency among pieces of
1: evidence, I'm gonna bring one more in because it's something that I've thought back to um, numerous times. Uh, this is a paper from very early during the pandemic. Um, Wei G I believe is the first author on it, but uh, it, it was comparing uh, similarity of SARS-CoV-2 sequence to, um, you know, known sequences uh, of coronaviruses. And, uh, you know, a lot of these sequences have a lot of similarities. I focus on clade A because these are the bat coronaviruses and they have the most similarity um, to SARS-CoV-2 nucleotide per nucleotide. And you can see for most of the sequence until you get to the spike protein, um, you have eighty to ninety percent similarity, and you know for most of the genome, ninety percent. You know it hovers around there, which is to say, you know almost identical, but with some, you know, uh, you know SNPs and uh, some, I mean, some you know morphisms yeah. here and there. Uh, but then suddenly you get to the spike, the spike protein, <laughs> and for a little over three thousand nucleotides, actually, actually right around three thousand, because um, the the curve kind of comes up before. The spike protein in. So for about 3,000 nucleotides, suddenly you have, this is all very different. This is a big, big red flag. Similarity, similarity, similarity in this piece where, you know, this yeah. is the piece where we think this matters in terms of the difference between this coronavirus and other coronaviruses. And this thing waves around its hands and says, we're, we're looking different over here. So, um, so you know, how to me to me this speaks toward um you know it's consistent with your analysis um but i i'm just going to throw this out there and and see you know what kind of discussion we can have
2: i think this is fair so it is important to note that rna viruses do recombine frequently this is why you know influenza goes from h1n1 to h1n2 that's a recombination you know of a influenza with an H1 and another influenza with an N2, they swap parts and then new influenza virus is born. And so recombination is common and that could explain this pattern. However, here's where the, you know, some numbers become important. The SARS-CoV-2 branch from the SARB, the larger SARS coronavirus tree, the SARS-CoV-2 branch is about 0.6% of all the evolutionary time that we sampled in this big tree. So all the branch length of the tree is like 99.4% of it is not SARS-CoV-2. And in that 99.4% of it, there was not a single furin cleavage site. And there was not a single virus that had this sort of regular spacing. And so it's asking a lot for this tiny, tiny, tiny branch of the tree to have two independent recombination events, both of which are consistent with the proposals of the diffuse grant a furin cleavage site and the spike proteins between the S1 and S2 subunits and a bunch of recombinations that give you this very neat BSA1, BSNB1 restriction map. So that's just where, you know, like, yeah, it could, it could, anything could happen by chance. But, you know, when we use our reasoning here, when you go into a murder scene and there's a gun and a bullet and a fingerprint on the gun, those aren't independent pieces of evidence anymore you know, they combine to tell a story. And that story is a theory, a larger theory. And this is our theory of the synthetic origin of SARS-CoV-2, is that these BSA-1, bsmb one cutting sites would enable one to modify the furin cleavage site, to add one in, for example, an experiment as proposed in the DEFUSE grant. They would allow one to assemble a virus in the lab. They would explain why this unusual coronavirus arose in Wuhan, far from the hotspots of wildlife coronavirus, in an animal trade outbreak, there's typically a trail of infections along the animal trade network, and we don't see that here. And so when you start to kind of combine these pieces together, the story becomes more than some of the parts. Yeah, I'm going
1: to jump in as an educator right here. Um, and, and Alex, um, you know, um, we haven't met before and I haven't uh, shared my background with you. I, I've spent a lot of time as a math educator. And, uh, and one, of, one of the sets of lessons that I love to focus on most, and I, I sort of overteach it, I, I, I insert it into curriculum at multiple grade levels, uh, conditional probability and statistics. If the world understood it, we would move forward so much you know, farther, so much faster. Uh, it's at the core of a lot of critical thinking, and it, it's quantitative. We say we have these conditions, right? Now you started talking about a crime scene with a bullet and a gun, and how these pieces of evidence are no longer independent from one another. In in conditional probability and statistics, we try to quantify this, but you know what? We can't always quantify these things. There is a degree to which we have to qualify them, and we come up with subjective estimates in our mind, right? And, and this is this is people people should um, learn this within mathematics, within statistics, and then also Learn to try to do our best to think that way in cases where at least we can think about it, even if we can't quantify it. When we see pieces of related evidence, um, we have a conditional, you know, and and we can at least think in our mind: how does you know how much overlap is there in the VIN set of what we're thinking about? And and the good quantitative scientists do this implicitly, intuitively, naturally, and. And this is the kind of conversation that we're approaching right here, and I so. uh, and I think that this is this is a major moment. This is a, this is a moment in which the conversation can and should uh, shift. Um, you know, I- until there is there is some sort of stack of evidence uh, against this. I mean, to me, this becomes the the um, the default. This becomes the presumption because there is enough that is that that is working together uh to build this picture now
2: so and i want to emphasize that we you know we don't know i mean there's a lot i don't know i could be living in the matrix right now so like (laughs) i don't know i don't you know like and that's just it's okay and so i want to emphasize that like even we often have to act with incomplete knowledge and incomplete data and evidence and we can still reason and say something is much more likely than another um, and I think that's what you're getting at with the qualitative nature of these calculations. And in terms of the conditional probabilities you're mentioning, yeah, it's for people interested in a Wikipedia browsing, there's this concept of a Beijing network, which is just how all this piece of evidence ties together, you know, in a graph. And the evidence could be, for example, a virus, a SARS coronavirus in Wuhan a furin cleavage site and a SARS coronavirus, and a SARS coronavirus that's equally cut up by these type 2 restriction enzymes. And a lot of patents with Ralph Baric's name on them. <laughs> are, these are, yeah, under, under the zoonotic origin, these are unconnected pieces of evidence. But under another theory, they're not unconnected. And so the conditional probability, you know, this actually becomes a weakness if one of these things wasn't here. If we said, no, this is you know a synthesized virus, but we didn't have any evidence that this could have been synthesized, then that's a weakness. Or if it's in Wuhan, but it doesn't have a furin cleavage site, that's a weakness. You know, Suddenly the lab origin becomes a lot less plausible. But because we have all of these, it actually becomes a strength. Because we can say that this is exactly what we would expect from a virus that arose from a lab as an accidental research project of back coronaviruses, doing exactly what people were doing pre-COVID, which is swapping parts, trying to find out which ones are likely poised for human emergence and building a vaccine to preempt it. And I think that's that's the theory. Right. And this can still be tested. Future data can refute it. But we have to be able to talk about it openly and without, you know, too much shouting or, you know, accusations of who took molecular biology in kindergarten and who didn't. You know, I, I think that there's just a lot of silly stuff happening that's distracting from like what we need to talk about as, as citizens of the world who went through a pandemic.
3: Well, I have, a, I have a restriction map up here that covers that region that Matt brought up. I don't know if it's been, there you, are, you can see it there. So um, Matt, I think you showed that um, high divergence between approximately around 20,000 and maybe 25,000, right? If you look at that that map that you had there. So you'll notice the Ralph Barrick preferred enzyme sites nicely bracket this, BSA1, BSA1, right? Easy to cut that piece out. Now, if you want to get to some of the innards of this piece, you have these other internal sites, these BSA X1s, that would then index this into three other pieces. One of which, if we zoom in here, is a sequence many of you may be quite familiar with. Um, Let's see if I can better anchor that. That looks like it's kind of bridging your window there. Um, Go back again. Okay. But one of which is actually the furin cleavage site. Um, So this one right here, this BSAX site here, nicely encompasses the site that codes for, um, I got the frame off on here. Let me just fix the frame. I think it's frame two. So you may have all been familiar with this sequence signal right here, right? P-R-R-A-R. Um, mm-hmm. this one here, QTQTN. this is part of the SAB domain and the HIV insight insert four, uh, and this here is the furin cleavage site. So one of these nice type 2S cutters nicely excises all of this. It leaves this, um, this conserved R behind, but that's conserved in a lot of the coronaviruses. This A, there's a way to change these three letters if you know what you're doing with, with ligases and, and, um, and enzymes. But you can see this whole cassette can come in and out really readily. And the enzyme that um, encodes this, it's recognition sequences in orange, right? All the other bases you're free to change. So if you wanna do an experiment where you wanna change all of these amino acids with the exception of the ones that are under the orange bases, this is a, a perfect piece to it with. Um, so it's just one of those conditional probabilities in my mind, it's like, okay, if I was an engineer and the most active region in this virus that's discussed in the literature is this region right here, I want an easy way to to, to cut and paste that puppy and maybe, you know, mess around with it. So I'm gonna gonna rely on the enzyme map that Alex suggested, which is, all right, there's BSA sites that Ralph Barrick likes to use that flank this whole region that is highly diverged uh, in the map that you showed. And I wanna take out this region and then start monkeying with the parts in between it. Um, All those tools are right here. These BSA sites clip this region out, these BSA X1 sites, break it into pieces. And each of these sites, if you look at the overhangs, they're all unique so that if you glue them back together, they'll self-assemble in the right order.
1: That's and an I important. see a lot of uh, uh, the differences in these numbers. I'm seeing 30, 30, 30. Uh, that's, that's 10 codons, right? Is, is that specific for a reason?
3: Oh, the these... Uh, I'm sorry, which, which th- these are the coordinates in the actual genome, right,
1: um, right, when you when like uh, 23,614 minus yes. 23,584, that's 30, there were 30 nucleotides in that sequence, well there's the three, you know, hanging on one end, three hanging on the other, where it would sort of, you know, be pasted in, but I, I'm, I'm looking here, and I see 30, 30, 30, 30.
3: Uh, are you, I'm sorry, I'm
2: missing the, I'm missing the 30 s- section. Um, so the other VSAX1 sites also have 30 nucleotides between? Is that oh, something yeah,
3: that's Yeah, rec- I'm sorry. That's the recognition site. Yes, good point. So it, this thing, the way that it recognizes the, the, the cut site is it sees this AC region and the CTCC region, and then it cuts seven bases one direction and nine bases the other direction. So it leaves you a 30 base pair cassette. Uh, and if you want to change that cassette because that, that happens to code for fear and cleavage site, you can readily do that by ordering an oligo from IDT and, and putting variable bases where those ends are. So those ends, you guys can see the recognition sequence up here on the screen, right? Is that showing up when I hover over this? It, it should give you a... Um,
0: my share screen should show you that.
3: Is and it I, a is it a
0: separate pop-up window that's coming up? Because right now you're sharing uh, just uh,
1: window. You know, uh, let's, let's move our images over. That, uh, does that help? The,
0: no he would need to un you would need to reshare but your whole screen instead of just this specific app window oh i see what you're saying yeah, yeah let me let me
3: let me get to that that's that's what's going on um stop sharing and let me do another uh, present and uh, that that that'll, that'll square up what we're um what's going on there uh it should give you just a window which is going to be this guy here okay so this is the recognition sequence of the enzyme so you can see it it, it looks for this pattern in the dna and then it cuts nine bases away and seven bases away on the other side. Seven plus three, so this ends up being a, a thirty-base pair cassette. And everything that you see in there that has an N in it, you can modify and experiment with. All right. So there, so built into this. Now this is some. This is a very unique pattern. We don't see this internal cut site in the other coronaviruses. So someone I think put it there so that they can readily modify the FCS and, and test maybe a library of different potential FCSs. In which case, the most optimal one may not necessarily pop out. It just happens to be the one that you happen to capture and was cloned and and worked in the experiment that you that you put this into. So I agree with Alex. I don't I don't like this argument that if it's not the most optimal thing, therefore it couldn't be lab design. That that's I mean, so much of what we do in the lab is accidental, right? It assumes that we're going to get like the perfect solution in the lab. That's that's a little um, unrealistic. Uh, what tends to happen is. Uh, whatever pops out is something that was you know, favored based on the environmental conditions that you set up and you don't un- totally understand those. Um, but, uh, but anyway, th- the point of this was to show that uh, the region that you highlighted, Matthew, of being highly diverged from all the other coronaviruses actually has some interesting bookmarks around it in terms of these restriction sites that Ralph Barrett likes to play with and also internal ones that would make it very handy for people to modify the most uh, published region of the genome. Uh, so all, all of these things kind of line up as conditional probabilities that are, you can't just take, an, as you guys were saying, as independent probabilities. They, you know, those things add up. Um, a separate set of things that add up in my mind, which I don't think are necessarily pertinent to Alex's paper, because I think it's, it's getting a bit off-topic and perhaps a bit more personal, but you do see uh, all of this literature coming out in Tony Fauci's emails and a lot of this discovery going on showing that there was an active attempt to bury this information. And many of the researchers who first looked at this came to the same conclusions we're talking about right now and somehow reversed them later. Uh, and it's not very clear why they reversed them later. Uh, so all of those things factor up in my mind as to something that is, um, uh, you know, leads me in the direction of favoring what, what Alex's team has, uh, has proposed.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, and I'll, one thing I will say is that what we've said you Know Ralph Barrick's name a bit. I want to emphasize we don't know who made this, you know, and yes. so we don't actually don't know. know. Ralph Barrick was a famous virologist, did a lot of great work with coronaviruses. He proposed this efficient reverse genetic system, and he had many students who learned these methods. Xi Zheng Li was one of them, and they showed that with one, for example, in figure two, was made without Ralph Barrick at all. So it could have, there weren't that many labs that had perfected this technique. Um, one of them was in Wuhan. Two of them were on the proposal to, to insert a fear and cleavage site in the SARS coronavirus in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And so while this does kind of get uncomfortably close to triangulating and, you know, I don't, I don't wanna be, I'm not the judge, jury and executioner. I'm trying to separate scientists from citizen Al. Um, the scientist Al just says, look, here's the method that was commonly used on coronaviruses for the 20 years before COVID. There are not that many people who are making these infectious clones. They had a fingerprint, and how they tended to modify them to be able to reuse these cDNA constructs. We found that fingerprint. This lends itself naturally to the theory of a synthetic origin. All right, and we don't know within, uh, especially within, um,
1: you know, uh, military uh, research, we don't know who in the U.S. or France or China um, may have learned these techniques that he pioneered. Um, so yeah, that that that's a good point. Um, but so. Uh, Alex, um, are there other pieces of this paper that we have not discussed yet that you feel are particularly uh, revealing and have not been enough of a part of a public conversation? Um, Let's go there and then let's uh, and then we'll move toward wrapping up the conversation.
2: You know, I think I'm glad we got to talk about the Bayesian networks, you know, like the this this what we tried really hard to do in this with this evidence is contain it and not like force ourselves into this network of other evidence. We wanted to emphasize that this is independent of the furin cleavage site in the sense that, you know, even if you found a back coronavirus with the furin cleavage site, it still wouldn't explain this even patterning. <laughs> and so that's, that's why we said this was independent of the furin cleavage site. However, when it comes to our deductions about this case of the origin of SARS-CoV-2, it's important to put this into context And I think seeing that bigger picture helps us see, you know, that, yeah. So some people said, ah, well, there's other methods to skin a cat. You know, there's other methods to make a virus. I wouldn't have done it that way. And that's totally cool, but we did a meta-analysis of all the literature of infectious clones built with type two enzymes from 2000 to 2019. This was the common method. This was the method that was used at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This was, you know, clearly found in the fingerprint of infectious clones it's totally possible recombination or other things could explain this, and we're open to that. Um, Science advances by testing our theory, you know, and it's important for people to distinguish between another hypothesis, because you can throw hypotheses all over the place, you know, but that's not a test of a theory. The existence of an alternative hypothesis does not reject, you know, a theory. And um, in terms of our paper, I think we're pretty pleased with it. There's more analyses that can be done Um, honestly, I think that, I think one of the things we're pleased about with this paper is that what we've provided might have some of the most discoverable evidence in the event of a lab origin. You know, people talking about these enzymes and these sites would be corroborating evidence of our hypothesis here. Um, if they said, oh, let's add a BSA1 site at 9751 in an email in 2019, that would be a you know very strong corroboration of our theory that these were engineered in order to make an you know infectious clone. So I think there's more to be done. There's gonna be other sequences that are found. There's other people who can run competing analyses, and we welcome that. You know, we don't wanna pretend like this is the last word of science. This could be wrong. And I want people to know that like. That's the sausage factory of science. Is that in a good market, we're able to say, like, here's what I think. Someone, please show me I'm wrong. You know, and I would be happy to know that this is a zoonotic event. I would love that. That would be bring me peace to know that it wasn't a scientist's accident.
1: Um, yeah, and this was one of my points about uh, you know good scientific conversation um, when 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 you have the you know the way that it should happen with people uh, not being too. Um, with not having interests that, that marry to their ideas and, and being able to uh, hang back and relax is, is uh, you know, disagreement is metal sharpening metal. And, uh, you know, this is where you take, um, you know, uh, a theory, which is which really might be um, you know sort of a cloud of theories and, and you push away the pieces that, that don't fit all of the evidence and you get a little closer and you and you, um, you know, come to conclusions about what evidence looks like sharper evidence than than other pieces. And um you know, and, and I, I feel like I feel like we're finally reverting closer back toward that. I feel like I'm having more of those discussions and seeing more of those discussions uh, uh, along the way. Yeah, so,
3: I, I would actually say that the more recent Twitter um, thread that you've been on, Alex, from J.B. Kinney uh, out of Cold Spring Harbor has been has been that has been metal sharpening metal. Some people have pushed back on some hard topics and you've answered them. Um, I, I still have there's still one that I have not yet got my head around. Um I think it had to do with alignment to Ratche13, but there was uh, a gentleman on there uh, who went and looked at the non or the synonymous changes that were going on in the restriction enzyme sites and found that a lot of them were were sitting in one of the sites versus the other five. Um, but it was in in comparison to e 13 so I don't know what you made of that. If that if that seemed like it had legs, or if that was just an artifact of of Ratche13.
2: You know, there's a bunch of different explanations. One could be like, whoa. Rat G thirteen has all these synonymous mutations, right? To the best of my knowledge, no one has made an infectious clone of that sequence in the lab. Right, that'd be a good way to verify that this is a virus, you know, and not just a bunch of letters on NCBI. Yeah, um,
3: yeah, that that's a good point. Steve Macy has some interesting work on that. I know it's, he's not he, pu- he published some of it, but he says there's more coming out. He thinks there's a transcriptome background there, and it doesn't look like it came from where they claimed it came from. So it's it's got a mysterious origin. But um, I will say, yeah, I think that
2: like. I, I hate to say this, it feels yucky, but like just being, if we're just putting on our Sherlock Holmes cap, the lab origin hypothesis involves a lab. Labs involve people and there's a government above the lab. If this was a lab in China, that government is the Chinese government. And we suddenly have to examine, you know, like trustworthiness issues that we usually wouldn't want well, to consider yeah. in science.
3: If this were in a court of law, there would be data that would be thrown out based on its source. Uh, there'd be conflicts considered there. So I think you're right about that. Um, that, 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 That's a fair point. point. Um, And particularly because of when they came out and maybe who they came from, that that may shed some doubt as to whether or not they're truly derived. No one can really reproduce them. And in science, it's really about reproducibility. If you can put your data public, but no one can go and reproduce it, you don't have access to the clone, these are all complications. This is why we have biobanks that, that allow some of these things to circulate so that we can actually verify that what happened in another lab, I can sequence here and show that I get the same result that they have there. That helps reinforce that these things are real, and not just uh, publication tricks that people have um, put forward. So um, I think that's a, that's a fair point.
0: Now, gentlemen, I think this is a fantastic place to wrap up, not because we figured everything out, but because we haven't yet. So um, I I just want to say, Kevin, uh, I I hope I've already said this to you. I admire you a lot for your approach and for your expertise and experience. And Alex, I want to tell you that now for the first time, I am suitably uh, impressed. You had nothing to prove yet. You've won me over, uh, as, as you being an earnest, intelligent person. And, and I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And as you can see, we've got the link to your preprint study up there. It is in the chat. We've also got a link to your sub stack in the chat. And I, there-
1: I'll, I'll put those links out in an article. Um, uh, in, in my sub stack later on when I, uh, and I'll, you know, I'll link this video there and, and please guys, you know, uh, do subscribe to our channel, uh, help us grow. We're, we're doing our best to connect to the people who are, who are trying to dig down and, and, and make a difference within their fields of expertise and bring them together and put these pieces together. Um, you know, make the connections that we can to, uh, you know, help the world uh, save science maybe
2: <laughs> yeah. uh, and,
0: and to, to educate where we can. And is there anywhere else, Alex? Before we let you go, that we should direct people to on your end?
2: I think this is great. Yeah, the the article, the Substack. I'm on Twitter, but you know, Twitter's a war zone. I don't necessarily endorse that platform, and so
0: <laughs> get me out of there. Fair enough. And uh, Kevin, this is your. I I know I'm subscribed. Oh, it's with yeah. my other account. Well, I'm going to subscribe with my second account as oh, well. Oh, thank
3: you. I need the numbers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, this is uh, this is Kevin's Substack. Hey, come on. Skip. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Well, I'm going to do all this later, but um, we're going to have that link as well in the comments, which I will put right now. Um, anywhere else you want us to direct people, Kevin?
3: Oh, no, this is fine. And I have a few more questions. I'll probably poke at you later, Alex, on transition, transversion rates, and APOBEC signatures, and what have you, but that's too much for now. And
1: yeah, maybe, so maybe maybe we'll sometime. circle back. Um, you know, if, if you guys uh, have the time, maybe, um, you know, a few weeks from now, uh, maybe we reconvene and, and see where we are at that point. Yeah. Yeah, that'll, that'll be know, good to see. will be more discussion be on
3: this, I'm sure, in the next two weeks. Just based, on, it seems to be heating up in in the in the news. So, uh, in the meantime, on,
1: on on Kevin's feeds, you can find eighty percent genetics and twenty percent cats.
3: Two <laughs> percent snark as we go for one hundred and two.
0: Mm, very good, very good. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Um, look forward to the next opportunity to chat um cool well let's take this beautiful cat off the screen but uh replace it with uh some other stuff we've we've been very busy matthew we have just i i want to jump in and announce that we're now officially on locals we've set up our locals community and we're doing stuff on it what can you tell us about that
1: oh yeah um good point to bring up and, and you know I'm, I'm gonna put out uh a, like just a quick sub stack uh probably later today uh just to give people like a, a free month like membership into that but you can i I, I don't even know that much about locals yet, but I, I think that you can be a part of our community for free or, yes. or like, a, you know, a paid member. Um, I'm going to send like, you know, up to like 25,000 people, like, you know, a uh, link to be able to, to be, you know, there um, with everything for a month. Uh, and then um, uh, we're, we're planning, we're, we're going to have a lot of discussions there, like planning interviews, like in an interview like this, if people want to say, hey, I'd like to ask Alex X, Right. Um, you know, we can see it in that community and, uh, and we, you know, really, we just started building this up in the last couple of days. So, um, you know, uh, there's, yeah, I think there are 20 people there right now, but, uh, Mm -hmm. and we may also recruit for Operation Uplift and, you know, there, there, there'll be some insider stuff. There are a lot of things that I want to say, and I want to say them, you know, not entirely publicly. And uh, this is, this is the place where I'll say that to, uh, subscribers. Um, Uh, but you know, we, we may test out, I may do things like, uh, have videos that are only there where I test out slideshows, and, uh, and, and, you know, discuss them with people. And Liam and I are discussing, um, like once a week, having a a live chat that is just, um, for people on locals. And again, you know, a lot of this may be, um, you know, people who join will be our editorial board, right? We have so many people who email us with, with so much great ideas and content. And we, you know, um, we want to mix minds as well as we can to do the best that we can and make this an, you know, an educational community, educational platform. So
0: yeah. And and, and and full full credit to Allison Morrow and to Viva Barnes law, both of which are channels that, that Matthew and I, or or one of the other are inspired by. So we're following in their footsteps a little bit here. So yeah, join on there. And like Matthew said, there's going to be, you can be part of the community without having to pay. And then there will be some stuff behind a paywall, which will allow, matthew and i too and the community at large to talk about things more freely in a speculative sense to try to figure out you know what's going on in ways we can't do here okay and then the one last thing i wanted to shout out we had jay cooey in the background for most of the show and unfortunately he had to uh jet but he i just wanted to shout out where did that link go he had sent a wonderful um, podcast he had done can you just briefly explain what this was this was quite monumental at the children's yeah um, the, yeah. I, I think this happened the, the podcast was recorded right before
1: the conference um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I talked with him a little bit about it while we were there uh, in fact that's where I, I, I've now met JJ uh, live and uh, uh, we, we, we've exchanged our hugs uh, but uh, JJ was talking about this um, it was him uh, Robert Malone Meryl Nass and Jessica Rose and they covered a really important array of topics and i know that there are people like who who jump in like you know uh oh robert malone is part of the deep state or you know is he is he an agent or something like that and and of course i i can't answer that question but the thing that i that, that i'll point out is it like listening to a conversation like this might actually give you a better direction in your intuition on a question like that, I think that that um, it, things are are very complicated when you're talking about people who have worked in and around the DoD, right? Uh, that uh, and they they talk about how part of the DoD's motivation with vaccines and supporting vaccine research and doing some of the things that they do may be in terms of biodefense. But you mm-hmm. hear Robert talk about this as in you know he doesn't know he and Merrill go back and forth you know. Um, uh, with, with some speculation on this, but, you know, th- this, it, it may just give people a better sense and and Tess and Tess Lowry was, was in this discussion yes. as well. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of people for one hour and they say some things that, that they all fit together in different ways. Uh, but JJ is going to have, uh, you know, very soon, I know, I know on biological at his channel, he's going to be taking the seven minutes uh, that, that he, you know, talked about mostly at the beginning of this interview and, you know, turning it into a much, you know, larger discussion. And he's going to be talking about some of the things that relate to what we discussed with Kevin and Alex here, you know, uh, with uh, infectious clones mm. um, that um, that could be, you know, uh, that could that could have, you know, have a lab escape. Um, some of them could result in uh, in, a, in an epidemic or a pandemic, but many of them might not. Uh, but he's going to talk more about that. And, you know, he, he's a great biologist and he's done a lot of work you know thinking through hard topics and uh and you know sifting down he he's the person who when i started you know thinking in terms of the the cloud and what omicron might be he was the person he was the one person really that i could call um very often you know back 10 11 months ago and and talk these ideas through with i've learned a lot from him um hopefully hopefully i i i have been a little bit educational with him too um but you um, you know uh, great feed. Uh, his feeds are always educational. Um, sometimes you can skip the first 10 minutes. He has a long intro. So if you don't see it live, you know, you can always, uh, but no, he, he, his feeds are just chock full of good information. And sometimes they're difficult to explain topics. Um, so, you know, you may have to watch once or twice. We are all, you know, like we talked about today, metal sharpening metal is bringing a lot of the points that we're, you know, trying to bring out, bringing clarity to them as we find out more information and how to explain them in terms of a model. So he, he's doing a lot of that work right now. So people can go check him out. Um,
0: yep. And yeah, as you can see here, one PM PDT that 4:20 20 PM Eastern. That's his next show. The link is in the chat there. Um, is there anything else you wanted to cover before we wrap up Matthew?
1: No, we've covered so much today. You know, what, what a great conversation. Uh, it's always, um, you know, I, I appreciate the degree to which these, brilliant people will come to us and, and talk with us and educate us so uh, I hope I hope the, the audience uh, gets a lot of that too. so uh, thanks everybody for joining. Uh, do press the subscribe button you know help us grow um, the people that you know who are going to be interested in this level of detail who are going to be interested in actual science you know um, send, send them this video you know tell them this is an educational discussion you know encourage them to to join and sign up um, and you know it, you know you, you may really love some of our videos and not others that's great. Um, We just want to be educational and do the best that we can and, uh, and have on interesting guests who are talking about important things who are not, you know, uh, who are not yet enough of the conversation. You know, we are we're the bleeding edge here. We're trying to be.
0: Well said, Matthew. The end of day's profit. Brother Matthew and brother Liam, thank yous. You're absolutely welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you again so much. Uh, Fun fact, YouTube demonetized the video within minutes of starting, which I don't think has happened yet. So that means somebody was on the button. So I'm not sure if Super Chat is working, but Rumble Rants are. Oh, you're back. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. I
1: I heard that and I have to jump back in. Holy cow. (laughs) YouTube, you. so uh, we've had one video totally struck. Yep. But YouTube came in while we were talking today and struck that one
0: yes and what that about my happened. conversation yesterday uh the conversation yesterday was so it af, i i wasn't watching the monetization status live but when okay. i went in to look at ours today it was uh limited ads so okay i have sent a manual
1: just, review request just just because this conversation is interesting while Richard and Gage and I were talking, I got an email from Amazon that said that our affiliate account is suspended. So I haven't, I haven't, I haven't gone into the details of that. I, don't, I, 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 you know, I don't know the details. I have not, I've not even had to, you know, I got home from uh, my trip and I've just had, you know, um, you know, all, almost entirely work except a couple hours last night, watching hockey with my wife. But, um, you know, it. it I'm just, I'm still catching up with things, so I don't yeah. know what's going on. But the uh, great
0: purge continues. My goodness.
1: Well, you know, hopefully, hopefully, we always have a place to rest. And and you know, um, there's Rumble, there's Rockfin, there, there's more and more, um, there's more and more competition among these platforms. But I think that uh, the technologists are going to have to continue to take steps. Right. I think we may be moving toward that world where um, you have decentralized blockchains and then pointers. Uh, Pointer sort of like a um, an advanced system of um, oh why is my brain asleep um, uh, you know a, a file sharing um, mm. where people like peer to peer yeah peer peer to peer but uh, you know, file sharing where where some people host on their own computer like the video that you might go out looking for yeah and then download um, but I, I you know I think we may have to move towards something like that I don't know if that's going to be two years from now or five years from now or how fast we're going to get there but. You know we're we're doing our best, and uh, you know we will we will try to share and explain those things as time yep. goes on with our audience. So,
0: yep, and and that is to say, rumble rant. Should be working, and we had more people again streaming, watching live on Rumble than we did on YouTube, which is fantastic. And we also had some folks on Rockfin. So, guys, thanks so much. Subscribe there, read the Rounding the Earth Substack that's Rounding the Earth Substack.com. Become a paid subscriber if you want to, and we will see you in the very near future. Goodbye, everybody.